From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Kadic. I have another bonus episode for you today. Last week, you heard episode four, Conquest of Bread. If you haven't, maybe you should stop now and listen to that because this piece is really a companion. In episode four, we took on McKinsey and Co. and the broader history of management consulting. Today, we dig a little bit deeper. I spoke with Professor Mark Spooner at the University of Regina, and he is an expert and staunch critic of neoliberal educational policies. He points his finger at something called audit culture and audit culture's influence in higher ed. Auditing is what places like McKinsey do. It's basically like accounting, you know, accountants audit. But audit culture refers to something broader than that. It's a way of governing, of governing through metrics, through numbers, through financial management techniques. When you're running a business, that sometimes makes sense. It certainly has a place. But when you're governing, when you're planning higher education policy, that becomes a little bit messier because this is the terrain of values. You can't put a number on everything. So how did audit culture end up in higher ed? Mark and I go through this history from Margaret Thatcher to McKinsey. Full disclosure, Mark is the head of a grant that partly funds the show. He advises us on some of our episodes, including the last one. These bonus episodes are an experiment. Every now and again, we're going to be doing these very loosely edited deep dives. They're not as slickly produced as the main show, but they go a little bit deeper into the ideas and the intellectual history. But like I said, it's an experiment. I want you to tell me what you think. Do you like this? Do you not like this? Well, let me know. You can reach me at dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or you can tweet me directly at Gordon Caddick. If you do like this, then I'm going to need you to chip in because we can't afford to do it every week. So go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. If I get enough people to chip in, I'll make this bonus episode a regular weekly occurrence. Okay, on with the show. To begin, I asked Professor Mark Spooner to define audit culture. I guess audit culture essentially crept from the world of finances and doing financial audits and, and now has uh, become ubiquitous across uh, across all aspects of society. There's nary a place you can go without encountering audit culture of one form or another. But but I'd say the, the big rise for me, I would put with Margaret Thatcher and at the time the neoconservative then neoliberal shift when there was a a big push to deregulate the private sector, but at the same time, hyper-regulate um, the public sector. And so uh, they applied, you know, audit concepts to every part of the public sector. And, and especially they, they took on the new public management, which, which really is a push for private sector management practices in public sector places uh, that typically in the past weren't viewed in, in that way and weren't audited or um, seen as uh, that's how they got success or failure. It wasn't through pr- private sector practices and, and success goals. So uh, all of a sudden now you, you know, you have a push to introduce market style incentives and disincentives. The 
the patient or student becomes a customer and that's coupled with branding and you have the devolution of budget functions, but the state still controls uh, the like tight auditing procedures and oversight. And then you get uh, what's happening in, in especially the um, post-secondary sector and that's the outsourcing of labor to casual temporary staff. And then you get this greater emphasis on output performance measures and controls all in the name of efficiency and accountability. I, I have I have lots of questions about higher ed, but I kind of wanted to d- dwell on audit culture as a kind of um, the paper that you sent me by Chris Shore and Susan Wright. I mean, it talks about it as a kind of of a totalizing ideology, a technology that we can kind of see everywhere. And when I started, when I when I was reading that paper, I started to think of like you know, happiness index, livability scores, walkability, my restaurant rankings on Yelp, um, how IMDB and Rotten Tomatoes ranks, the quality of the movies I watched. um, And of course, you know, the financial measures like GDP, et cetera, et cetera. But um, where else do you kind of see that in your daily life? Well, anyone who's familiar with the K to twelve system would would be familiar with um, the mass high stakes testing craze that's really gone throughout the United States and many parts of Canada. Uh, there, there's a place again where we start to deprofessionalize the experts, and there's it kind of imbues a mistrust in the experts and the people whose job it is to do that work, whether it's doctors, teachers, professors, and we start to. Uh, trust instead these standardized tests of one form or another in in uh, in, in terms of uh, emergency services you'll you'll get even where the ambulance has to go to the call, respond to the call and fill out the form within 15 minutes and it's success that's a success if if they've done it within 15 minutes say even if the patient dies uh, so so there are big consequences to putting our trust in these external evaluation forms. And it all boils down to people's yearning for an objective round number that they can benchmark and compare. And yet not, uh, you know, not everything can be compared that way. We're not talking about money. Money can be divvied up into dollars and cents and money out, money in. And, and it's really, um, you know, easy to make it comparable. But when you're talking about qualitative things, uh, you know, well-being or uh, how to be a participatory citizen, things like that, those don't measure up in the same way. And yet, uh, because of this ubiquitous audit culture, people put a lot of trust in it and and it ends up changing the behaviors it set out to measure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, from that paper, I mean, they quote um, the famous Einstein quote, not everything that is countable counts and not everything that counts as countable, which I think really captures captures that well. Um, I want to ask you about the kind of intellectual history here, but maybe before we do that, just to make it really plain to the audience, how would we define audit culture? I mean, what is it really? I guess right in the name, it's a kind of culture. So what does that mean exactly? Well, audit culture would be um, the mistrust of the professionals and the narratives that they might uh, give you about anything from your kid's behavior at school to how a hospital or a doctor performs. Uh, You start to mistrust narrative pieces, the qualitative aspect, and 
uh, you, you hypertrust these objective numbers, even though the numbers themselves only give the veneer of objectivity. They're, they're actually uh, imbued with value judgments of their own, what to measure, what not to measure. How do we put a, a round number on um, community well-being, for instance, or things like that? They, they just can't be measured in that way. And, uh, you know, earlier I talked about Margaret Thatcher and neoconservatism leading to neoliberalism, but uh, you can trace these ideas even further. Uh, like, for instance, Don Campbell looked at um, how when indicators become targets, they become corrupted because they change the behavior in which they were supposed to provide some kind of measurement of what was happening now, they direct behavior. And that, that behavior is changed in the proportion to how much high stakes they become, how much emphasis is placed on them. Uh, that's how people will, will conform to the measures. And, and uh, he looked at, you know, old Soviet planning and the nail factories who's, you know, in, indus in industrial productions where if the targets were in weight, they would produce their largest nails. And if the targets were in volume, they produced their smallest nails. And it always led to the overproduction of uh, redundant items and the underproduction of needed items. And, and that's exactly what's happening here. And it, I find that part deeply ironic that freedom, free market champions like Doug Ford and, and Jason Kenney in Alberta would actually be copying heavy-handed Soviet Union planning. <laughs> I love little stories like that. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you ever come across Lee Phillips' work. He, he has a book on Walmart, and he argues that it's like, you know, an example of a kind of efficient command and control economy. Um, that there's, not, there's very little, they compete in, a, in the market more broadly when they squeeze out other smaller competitors, but internally, um, they they are very planned, and I think that's there's something to this when you see kind of like ham-fisted approaches to planning, where you develop hundreds of metrics, routine reports, and you report back to a a central planning committee on how you've done. The irony of that um, that conservative governments are the ones who implement that. Um, do, do you think they recognize the irony? They just don't care. I mean, what what are we what are we to make of that irony? You know, I, I don't think they do recognize the irony, but <laughs> I, I do think that, um, for instance, Doug Ford in Ontario and the metrics they've picked in order to evaluate universities and decide if universities are being successful in their endeavors is really um, no doubt a heavy-handed attempt to rejig the missions of universities. You know, traditionally, universities haven't always succeeded, but they've always had the aspiration of creating, you know, uh, well-rounded, critical, and creative citizens capable of participating in a democracy, and and they do that while doing uh, research in the public interest. You know, discovery-driven, curiosity-driven research, critical research, community-engaged research. All of these things happen at universities, and yet, uh, when you look at the metrics that uh, the Ford government wants to impose or is imposing on universities. They're really redirecting the mission to a, a very narrow, short-sighted goal of serving the labor market and doing corporate-style research and yeah. development. Yeah, it's it's not really a good faith. Uh, they have a pretty predetermined uh, end in mind, um, and I wanted to run through those um, those various metrics that they're using, but just maybe to dwell 
a little bit more, I mean, we talk about Campbell and you talk about the Soviet um, kind of central planning. They theorize that into something, right? Campbell's law, can, is, is that what it's called? Can you explain right. how, what exactly that, that means? Yeah, just succinctly that when an indicator becomes a target, it will corrupt what it's set out to measure because people conform to the measure. So it, it, it actually, and Chris Shore talks about how total, totalizing these measures are because you start to conform to the measure. And, and so it really changes uh, individual scholarship, uh, departmental scholarship, and, and the stuff that universities engage in. These things uh, can turn around quickly and we have examples of that throughout the world, but none better than the research excellence framework in the United Kingdom, which uh, had the horrific uh, result of, of changing behavior so that everyone focused on research only and neglected teaching. So they, they actually uh, had to institute the teaching excellence framework, and they were going to set out to measure teaching and give people a rating of bronze, silver, and gold in teaching. <laughs> uh, I, I kid you not, and that would determine how much uh, tuition they could charge. They could charge extra if they received a gold rating. And uh, it just shows you the, the, you know, the downward spiral of adding measures to deal with the gaming of the measures you've already introduced, and then the leading of the bureaucratic bloat. We're talking of millions and millions of pounds, millions of you know, dollars, these things end up costing and how unwieldy they get because uh, they continue to increase in size. And we talk about sort of governmental and administrative bloat. Well, you got to feed these uh, numbers yeah. machines. And so universities then have entire teams of people, uh, you know, gathering the data that's needed to feed these uh, frameworks that then need the data and then have to pour over them and then react to the game data. And so you, uh, you know, just in the UK uh, alone, both the research excellence framework and the teaching excellence framework have been, uh, the teaching excellence framework was uh, suspended in 2020, it won't run, and it's going to get uh, reformed. And so uh, is the research excellence framework. They, they've had to step back and take another look because the minister herself, uh, you know, in a speech given in October said, that we're having the improper effect people are talking about the um you know like journal articles and citations like those are the end goals instead of yeah. the research and teachings they're meant to share to the scholarly community it, it creates these perverse incentives right i mean um have you ever watched the show the wire i have i have yeah. i love that show isn't it just the perfect encapsulation of what we're talking about like um misdemeanors get up to felonies, felonies get downgraded to misdemeanors, certain uh, neighborhoods get over-policed, others get under-policed based solely on kind of top-down statistical measures. Um, and, you know, that lo that's looking at the police side of things, but it also, you know, it goes into the education side of things. Um, so this is just everywhere. Um, and, and it's creeping into higher ed. Um, well, maybe not creeping, maybe it's sort of taken over. Um, so Thatcher and John Major, um, you've been talking about, but, you know, maybe before I ask you about that, I mean, there's also a broader intellectual history, right? Like in, in the main episode, we talk about, um, we talk about McKinsey and we talk about the history of 
scientific management as a kind of movement. Where do you see um, those disciplines and ideologies fitting into audit culture? Are those, are those the same thing, basically, or are they different? They're, they're part of the same kind of management style. I think of Taylorism, mm-hmm. and uh, I also think of uh, lean management concepts that from, you know go from America to Japan and back, where people feel they have control over the process yet actually don't and everybody's hyper dependent on each other or the whole thing fails and you don't get your bonuses so you start to police yourself and you know that's where Foucault enters into this you get this panopticon surveillance piece because you need to live up to the measures and some universities even have a dashboard that's kept up to the second about how many publications you have how much funding you've brought in and where you rank against your colleagues so uh, what's happening, you know, with the REF, the Research Excellence Framework in the United Kingdom, entire departments, I'm talking about successful departments, are closed because they didn't measure up on one ranking or a certain set of metrics, even though they had a whole host of other ones. So the, the metrics themselves are always in contention. What is success? And, and one, you know, an easy one to look at is uh, graduate earnings. So the Ontario government is proposing graduate earnings as a way to judge uh, a university on whether it was successful. So within the first five years, uh, how much earnings the graduates make. So at first I was dismayed at this measure. I'm, you know, I was thinking, you know, what if people choose meaningful work? They choose contentment, fulfillment, giving back to the, their communities over earnings. Like that's a failure. In, in this new metric. And, and then I got thinking about that metric and how troubling that is. Like, just take a moment and think about that, that the university would be somewhat uh, tacitly punished for graduating students with a social conscience, students who'd rather work at a food bank or a community engaged center uh, for less money, but uh, great rewards in terms of giving back and feeling good about oneself and, and making the world a better place, you know, as lofty as that sounds. Uh, how troubling it would be that a government would all of a sudden now incentivize uh, eschewing those kinds of things for graduate earnings. And, and then, you, you, you know, you start to dive down a bit more about just that one metric. Well, who makes the most money when they graduate? I'll tell you who in Canada, uh, these things are racialized. So, those uh, from minority groups are hired less frequency, less frequently and for less money. So now you're incentivizing bringing in, uh, you know, people with the highest social capital. And, and, and just in, in that one, I, I think of, uh, you know, so now you bring in the discrimination that occurs in the Canadian workforce you know, who's employed, who isn't employed and at what frequency. And now you're imposing it on a university that have really tried, they're really trying efforts, again, in their aspirational ideals to bring in uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. You know, you can critique them, and that's what's good about universities. You're able to critique them, and they're going to try to improve. But uh, you're really saying, never mind those efforts. We want grads who are going to make the most money right away and get hired the most quickly. You're basically reinscribing the the discrimination um, and inequity right back into the university. Any efforts it makes to undercut those is uh, against its material interests, essentially. Absolutely. And I just find that so troubling. This is the thing about audit culture that it 
is so clearly political. Like the, I think you said it already, but the idea, look, what we measure is a political ideological value decision that um, even irrespective of the measurement itself, the selection of the measurements um, is such a value-laden enterprise. Yet I think in the public's eye, performance indicators are seen as these kind of like ideological free objective measures of success that are just meant to kind of hold people, you know, accountable and make them, um, make them perform. Right. And that's a cunning piece. Who among us is against accountability and efficiency? Who among us would say uh, those are bad things until you dive in and look at how they're defining it you know, uh, accountability and efficiency. And, and you get back to things like graduate earnings. But but that's not the only measure. I mean, if you look at um, graduate graduates working in the field that they studied in, you know, yeah. graduate in the, working in the, the related field that, they, that their studies were in. Again, what, what are we in the 1950s? Are you going to graduate and stay in the same place of work for 30, 35 years? You, you know, I, it just doesn't reflect the modern reality, sadly, of the gig economy, for instance, where uh, unfortunately students have to move around. And, and so what a student wants and what a student who succeeds it at university will get are portable skills. And we're talking about creative skills, critical thinking skills, uh, communication skills, able to work in teams, all of these kind of what some call soft skills, uh, that are portable and they're able to uh, not only uh, be useful in the current labor market, but they're prepared to to be able to adapt to the jobs that we haven't even anticipated yet. Yeah. And so that's the the real beauty of that kind of education is that the skills are portable. And, and then you get a metric like uh, graduates working in a related field that they studied in. Well, Again, it just doesn't seem to make any sense unless you're trying, uh, you know, one, you have a 1950s attitude to the workplace uh, where, you know, a student's going to graduate in, say, education and work in education and and stay there their whole lives. That's, that, yeah. unfortunately, those days are gone for many graduates. And as a, a small anecdotal aside, I was the chair of a community organization that dealt with homelessness and did a needle exchange and provided clothing and medical care. And I always uh, made it a point of hiring the grad with uh, the best interview who came with the best fresh ideas. And they, they never came, or, or in, in my case, they came from education and political science, places that you might not immediately think uh, would be good at running a community-based organization like this one. In this case, it was called Carmichael Outreach. And let me tell you, those grads came with the best, freshest ideas, were able to make links that I hadn't even imagined would be able to be made between organizations. And, and also, um, in a strange way, made it cool to, to work in your community and, and give back so that the media started doing all kinds of uh, press stories. Uh, all of a sudden, donations are on the rise. We're able to serve more people, which... You know, when you when you start to think about it, those these are band-aid solutions. Of course, uh, in the end, you'd want to be able to close because you're no longer needed. Uh, but but in the short term, when people are hungry and you need them to have food in their belly, uh, 
Uh, I always say you can't do Foucault on an empty stomach. Uh, <laughs> like that. You, you, you know, uh, th these grads were the best, but again, under the Ford metrics, they'd be seen as failures. Yeah. One, they're not making a lot of money, but they've got high job satisfaction and contentment. And, and two, they're not working in a related field. But boy, did they give uh, valuable insights and, and new, fresh perspectives to the job. I think that's such a such a telling example. I mean, my undergrad education was in philosophy, and I can't think of how philosophy could survive under that kind of metric. I mean, what there's how many professor professional philosophy jobs are there? Not very many. So, what is a related field? I mean, ideally, it should be kind of everything is related, but. Um, this is this is this, the trouble with these measures. Um, well, yeah, and and I'm not saying don't measure anything. Yeah. Like on this one, what everything's a related field. Measure student satisfaction with their education. Measure mm -hmm. it upon graduation and five years later. Ask them, hey, how do you feel about your education? What did you uh, enjoy and what did not serve you well? And and uh, you know, there I'm not saying not be accountable, but let's look at uh, metrics that make more sense. Yeah. So so you've been talking about the uh, proposed metrics that the province of Ontario is going to use or is using. And and by 2024, I think 60% um, of the university funding is going to be tied to these metrics. That's, that's my understanding of the status of it right now. Um, but I want to ask you a little bit more about the history of this because you, you tell me that it really takes off in the 80s under Margaret Thatcher and John Major and this ideology of new public management. What, what does that mean? Well, I guess, uh, like I was saying, where all of a sudden we're going to deregulate the uh, private sector, but now we, we're going to view the public sector with great mistrust and, and we have to uh, sort of overlay market-style incentives and disincentives on the public sector, even though um, it really, in the end, is less efficient to do so. And, uh, you know, it always gets me thinking about when success is failure. <laughs> and and, and I, I like these kind of oxymoronic things that, uh, you know, Genusian type metaphors that don't, don't fit right and they, they get you to think. So sometimes success is failure. And, and, and here's one. If you succeed with new public management, you're actually failing society because you're producing a bunch of uh, work that's casual and temporary. You want to be able to let them go uh, at, at the drop of a dime. Uh, people can't raise families and plan on, on things like that. You, you, you want to make them a customer. Well, you know, an education is not like buying a pair of jeans. You're, it shouldn't be easy. <laughs> I, you know, when I go buy a pair of jeans, I want that to be, uh, efficient and uh, easy. I want to tell me the size, I'll tell you the size, give me the pants and I'll pay. Uh, but an education should be difficult and especially a transformative one. It's going to push you. It's At times you're not going to be happy that you uh, stayed up all night studying or working on an essay or working through difficult concepts. But in the end, uh, it'll make you a much better learner. And, and uh, if the education succeeded, you'll you'll gain metacognitive skills that will serve you your whole life. You'll understand more about your own understanding and, and how to learn. So uh, again, uh, when I think of new public management, uh, it's essentially ad adopting private sector things to public sector like healthcare or, 
or the education system, and then uh, really mistrusting the professionals within it. So you want to deprofessionalize them and hyper uh, trust external measures like standardized tests in K to 12, which again, on the metrics, I hate to keep coming back to them, but they're, they're very much on my mind. Uh, you know, under the Ford plan, they want to bring standardized testing out of K to 12 and into post-secondary. I can think of nothing more deleterious to a good education than privileging standardized tests, a couple of 45 to 90 minute OECD produced standardized tests uh, that will somehow judge whether I've learned critical thinking. <laughs> uh, like, it is laughable if it weren't so serious. I, mm. uh, that's, again, one part of their plan. And, and then why would you privilege, say you want to value the standardized test. It's one measure among many. Then, then have it be in concert with the 20 or 40 other second opinions from all of the courses you've taken. You've had a diversity of profs who've used a diversity of assessment techniques and a diversity of teaching styles. Uh, each of those profs brings uh, an ins insight into your own uh, being and what you've accomplished or not. And, and then if we're going to even accept the standardized test, then it can't be a measure at the end, like it's given uh, primacy over all the other measures that we've used. It should be uh, 5% of the measure, just like, you know, for instance, if I had 20 different profs who rated me, and, and now you add this 21st measure, the standardized test, it should be 4 or 5%, not the be all and end all, not the decider, one big metric of uh, uh, which of 10 that decides how much of 60% of the funding is on the line. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that this moment of new public management, I, I didn't know, but I mean, un, under Thatcher, audits, um, not just in education, but in basically every realm of government proliferate. We're talking about hundreds. I have here again from the, the Shore and Wright article, which I'll link online. I mean, there's public spending audits, waste management audits, democracy audits, technology and computing audits, teaching audits, academic audits, value for money audits, land and water resource audits, media audits, medical audits, stress audits, and of course, audits of auditing systems, yeah, <laughs> which, which is the, the, meeting, the meeting to discuss meetings kind of thing. Now, the now Gordon, this is the, the big shift of public money to private firms. This is the yes. rise of McKinsey and the KPMGs and the, uh, all of the other, you know, in accounting, they talk about the big four, but in management, there's often the big five. And, and you get this merger of uh, consultancy firms and public accounting accountancy firms uh, that then take over. They actually take over governments. Governments become so reliant on them and they funnel away, redirect so many public resources, so much money away from the things that the public money is supposed to be serving in the first place into private hands, into private black boxes of consultancy that we never get to see. And some of that maybe you've talked about. Yeah. Uh, I'm waiting with uh, bated breath to, <laughs> to hear the McKinsey uh, podcast, but uh, for sure, this is the, the, this is what gives rise to, to those mega firms that yeah. are around the world and, and it gets exported all over throughout throughout the world. There's nary a place you can go that's not under audit culture now. So, okay, so so you 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 have this new public management in um in the UK and then it it 
it really takes hold in higher education in the UK, but then it, it goes all over the world and, you know, Norway, Poland, Portugal, um, Australia, um, New Zealand, Denmark. One thing just to point out in terms of context, like um, it's not as common in the United States, right? Or it's it's more common in, in centralized educational systems. Is that why or how does that work? Well, yeah, that's why Canada has uh, largely been spared this until now because of tertiary education or post-secondary education is um, a function of the province that's a, it's in the ballywick of the province. It's, it's their purview to, to, to uh, rule on these things. Uh, and in the United States, it's the same thing. So there's not one uh, central agency that doles out the money to all of these things. So it's not as easily imposed on uh, the province because no one government can do it. I mean, you know, we're seeing the rise of it with Alberta and Ontario, but um, this is a new thing. And the United States does have performance-based funding, but there it was more in terms of um, graduation rates and uh, how the the universities were spending the money. Now, again, in the United States, they don't spend as much of the percentage. You know, the funding might be around 20% for a degree program, whereas in Canada, it's closer to 50 uh, so somewhere around there anyway. Um, but even there, you know, just to bring some research into that, there was an article that came out in December 2020 in the Journal of Educational Evaluation and Policy Analysis, where uh, the author Justin Ortegas and his team undertook a systematic and comprehensive review of 52 of the best peer-reviewed studies published between 1998 and 2019 that examined the outcomes of performance-based funding in the 41 U.S. states that had adopted this funding model in one form or another. And and after they've performed a meticulous review, they concluded that performance-based funding is generally associated with a null or only very very modest positive effect on the intended outcomes of retention and graduation, but also compelling evidence that the performance-based funding policies led to unintended outcomes related to restricting access, gaming of the performance-based funding system, and disadvantaging uh, underserved groups, which which is kind of I touched on in terms yeah. of you know graduate earnings. But uh, another piece of the story, maybe, you know, uh, in Australia, there's a, a scholar I quite like in Australia, Brownwyn Davies, and she talks about how in the in the eighties, these ideas of the audit culture were sold as a way of breaking through the oil, old boys club. So, so you have like Brownwin talks about how, uh, you know, in they the women, feminist women were early adopters saying, Hey, we can finally just tell us the number. Uh, don't leave it in this obscure black box of how someone gains tenure or gains a promotion or merit. Give us the number. And the numbers they got and women uh, attain those numbers, achieve the what would have what should have been success, and lo and behold, do they not change the numbers? They change what's expected, what performance indicators would really count. So we move from uh, journal articles supposed to count, citations supposed to count, and it goes to funding. Now we're going to look at uh, you know primarily how much funding did you receive, and so uh, they quickly become disenchanted because the goalpost keeps shifting to to still keep them out. 
but and and their participation, their full participation. But then all of a sudden we get an even more uh, dark, ironic twist where under the new measures, you get the closure of women and women studies or gender studies programs close because they're not attracting the big funding. Uh, so you get this double cross. It's kind of a, you know, there's one way to look at it is a, a double cross. The promise of equity gets double crossed into a further marginalization of the kinds of studies that women do. That's her examples from Australia. You know, there's examples in New Zealand where uh, they start valuing uh, international work. International work is what they're going to value. Well, a lot of Indigenous uh, women especially do local work. Uh, they've done their studies in, a, in the local context because they uh, often had other domestic duties. Uh, they've taken on or were thrust upon them to take care of the children, take care of their communities, take care of the old folks in the family and in the community. So uh, they don't study abroad, don't make the international connections in the same way. Uh, so once again, the, the, the promise of just give me the metric and I'll perform to it gets uh, twisted into still keeping people down, but even worse, then you get the closure of um, Indigenous studies uh, centers at, at universities because they're not performing on them on them these sort of uh, game on, on these metrics that are themselves uh, uneven playing fields. That um, yeah, so darkly ironic, like you put it. I I think I understand what's what's going on here. I mean, in a sense, an objective quote unquote an objective measure, even if it's imperfect can be or can look much better than the capriciousness of like patriarchy and um and this like ill-defined set of uh criteria that can just be colored by racism sexism homophobia etc cetera, etc cetera. um but I guess it kind of speaks to ultimately, you know, that there is no such thing as an objective measure and those structures of power and oppression are gone when you add a number because they're just going to be gamed. I mean, this exactly. kind of resonates with the history of management consulting as well. You know, one of the things that Matthew Stewart told me, who, who wrote a book on McKinsey and did an intellectual history of management consulting, is that it was also sold in in progressive terms that, you know, why subject yourself to just the capricious whims of a boss when you can, you know, perform to the indicators that are fair. Absolutely. And Brownwin tells another story to save women in gender studies. The profs who were engaged in that work decided to teach the extra courses for free. They would take on this overload. Wow. Well, guess what, guess what management did? Hmm. Well, oh, you're able to teach these extra courses and still do your work. Well, now they're part of your, your uh, expectations. So, you, you know, you, you just can't win. Uh, <laughs> it, it just won't work. These are immoral management techniques and they lose all the relational value. That's the thing about an objective number that maybe we don't talk about also is that they're not relational. There's no understanding of the people in the work and the work, what it means to the communities involved. Did you uh, improve the nutritional outcomes for a community? 
Well, that doesn't get measured or, or not by these measures. Uh, it, it doesn't even count. So a lot of work often too is that they, they don't tell you you're not allowed to do community engaged work. That would be a, an affront to academic freedom. What they do is keep you so busy doing the things that do count that you never have time to get to the other parts. And if you do, you're working 80 hours a week or more, uh, stress builds up, you get burnout, you get disillusionment. In extreme examples, like in the United, in the United Kingdom, you get cases like Stephen Grimm who commits suicide. And, and I don't like to sensationalize this and it's not my story to tell other than this is not to be fooled around with. These are real people's lives and these are real stress levels that people have to endure and live under uh, these conditions. And one other quick story about key performance indicators uh, that uh, Chris Shore, you mentioned Chris Shore and Susan Wright, and, and also D Donald Campbell talks about it too, in terms of Campbell's lies that he talks about McNamara, you know, the Ford super genius who uh, originally uh, initially helped turn Ford around uh, looking at their processes and how to streamline them, uh, then becomes the Minister of Defense. And uh, when you think of Vietnam, he, he institutes the body count. Here's something that's easy to count. How many dead bodies are there? But this is the thing about indicators again, how immoral they are. Uh, it doesn't matter what bodies, it doesn't matter if they're civilians, it doesn't matter if they're uh, un affiliated with the war in any way. It's just how many dead bodies in the field. That's how we'll determine if we're winning. And that's one of the reasons many attribute the United States didn't win Vietnam because they, they lose sight of all the traditional goalposts for winning a war. Did you take a command center? Did you uh, take over a, a key territory? Instead, you just get this immoral and, and uh, in the end, uh, sort of meaningless, sadly, indicator, mm -hmm. dead bodies. Hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about your own kind of struggle with these indicators because you just talked about how difficult it can be because the meaningful relational work isn't um, quantified and materially incentivized. And I'm wondering how you have navigated this because, you know, you do so much public work, you do it with me, you do a bunch of interviews uh, and media work. You mentioned um, the community-engaged activism with with homeless people in 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 Regina. Um, so, how have you managed to do that, and what pressures has audit culture put on you? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, first of all, I can't deny that being a white male has helped. Because when uh, my work is critiqued as unscholarly, it's not the same kind of bite as it has uh, for some others. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so one, there's an assumption that I am scholarly because I'm a white male. I have the traditional beard, uh, <laughs> all the sort of trappings of a professor, a sloppy kind of look, a messy <laughs> office, books everywhere. All these things led, lend credibility to uh, the work that I do, and especially the non-standard work. So when, when I look at my uh, female counterparts, when I look at uh, women uh, scholars and, and uh, non-binary gendered scholars in the academy, they're working twice as hard because they're bringing in the big grants. 
they're bringing in uh, the the high uh, journal rankings, uh, citations, and, and publications, only to be able to do the work that they really want to do, the meaningful work that they want, and so they they pay a high price. They're working, you know, eighty hours a week, and I'm not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. They're they're working all the time. Not that I'm not working often, but I I can see it that they work harder. I'm really fortunate. I'm in a very sane faculty of education. <laughs> and, and I say that because in our meetings, we actually speak to one another. We try to understand each other's perspective. And, and we really come from a place of support instead of surveillance. And I think because we deal with children and we know about education and we know that uh, standardized tests aren't a good measure of what a child knows or how good a teacher one is. Uh, we already know that, you, you know, it's kind of part of our scholarly upbringing, I, I guess. So when we have meetings and we see a colleague who's maybe not performing at 100% on the citations, let's say, or the journal publications, we, we look a little deeper and, and we look in a supportive manner rather than a surveillance manner. And so we assume everyone must be doing other work. And then we look and lo and behold, most of the time they are. Well, I was on 10 committees this year. I reviewed 20 articles. I took on uh, 10 interns for teaching uh -huh. and I was on uh, 10 other committees that were external to the faculty of ed. And, and so all of those things contribute to a healthy environment where uh, collegial governance is functional. Um, th that's another part. Uh, oftentimes uh, our collegial governance structures are there, but we're left almost too busy to participate in our own governance. What many workplaces would would really look upon with such envy that you get to a say in how you're governed. Uh, we're often kept so busy that it's difficult to participate in those governance structures, uh, but we do. And, and I guess metrics like the ones that Doug Ford is bringing in and, and Jason Kenney has proposed uh, are really end runs. They're really backdoor attempts to change all this, to change collegial uh, governance structures, to change, uh, uh, disciplinary authority who has the authority to deem someone has learned or has been successful as a student has properly engaged with the uh, outcomes that were wanted out of a course and and now we shifted all that and placed our trust in a 45 minute computerized test developed by some external body like the OECD uh, like that's what's happening mm. and uh, I guess uh, another little part I guess I've always been really fortunate to have a great faculty mentors who could see the value in my work. And uh, I happened to start reading about uh, audit culture and key performance indicators pretty early on in my career. So I, I could understand the technologies of governance that are being uh, thrust upon me and sort of start to decode how this is affecting my behavior and how do I fight it. Knowing that they exist, um... It seems like the right strategy is just like know about them and try and game them as best as you can, like in a, in a sense, but um, or at least do what's necessary to make sure that you stack up. Um, but I wonder, you know, I'm a young scholar um, and, and I, I suspect a lot of young scholars are listening now. And one of my worries is that 
you commit yourself to, okay, I need to fill out the CV. I need to do what is necessary to get to myself to a point where I'm like Mark Spooner and I have tenure and then I can do the meaningful work. And I guess I'm worried that the metrics and the ideology of audit culture, even when uh, employed cynically, like I might, eventually become totalizing and transformative that you can't go back once you've accepted the premises. Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you resist them and not become that? You, you know, sure. A lot of the work that I do is fueled by a great concern for the academy that you're going to inherit. Uh, that's, that's for sure. I, I like to work with new scholars as much as I can. Uh, one, because your energy and, and your knowledge is, is addicting. I, I love it. It's, it's uh, really satisfying to work with people who are pushing the envelope in all kinds of ways. But, um, you know, also I would say, if you can, ask the hard questions at the job interview. Ask, is there a work-life balance here and is it real? Uh, are you going to value non-traditional work? Are you going to value our relational work as opposed to only uh, journal articles or uh, funding uh, achievements? You, you know, and you might find a place that surprises you. Uh, you know, it's made a world of difference for me to come to the University of Regina because I was kept out of the high pressure cooker uh, game that would have been what I perceived to be at the University of Toronto or even at my own university at the time at the University of Ottawa, you know, I had so many well-meaning profs tell me, Mark, you know, all this work that you're doing at the Graduate Student Association is fun and it's good and you're organizing these conferences and symposia. These are good, but keep your eye on the prize. You better be writing journal articles. And since that time, I've always been tr troubled and it stayed with me uh, fr from that graduate, from those graduate days. I I've always wondered, like, these are well-meaning people who really care about me and are trying to give me good advice. Why does it feel so wrong? Why, why is this advice so troubling to me? And uh, I guess if you can, there are lots of universities who haven't bought in. They, they haven't bought into the audit culture and they're not blindly following the metrics uh, like some zombie uh, because the metrics are the metrics and we all want to be Oxford and Harvard and we're all going to compete on the same terrain as Oxford and Harvard and never get there. It's like the, I, I liken it to, you know, to um, the working class uh, and the poor who uh, don't want to tax the rich in case they become millionaires. <laughs> and I think, like, don't worry, man. Uh, this is the least of your worries. You, you, you got it backwards a bit here. So I, I would say to you, keep doing the work that you believe in. Sometimes, uh, if you can, you, I guess you play the game. But... Um, I guess another important part that I've been challenging uh, people every chance I get is that this is a time when faculty associations, so our unions, have to work with our administration, have to work with university presidents, and both together have to defend the aspirational ideals of the university if we're going to get through this. Because if we succeed at the metrics that the Ford government has laid out, that'll be a failure. And again, I, I, I just can't get over that when success is failure. And there's, a chance, there's, a, there's an instance of that. When 
we start to value how much people earn instead of the meaningful work that they do. When we start to value that they work only in a certain field rather than take the gift of the general abilities they've honed and the skills that they've acquired and are able to transfer those in any number of fields. When we value the kinds of research that costs money over the kinds of research that might be groundbreaking and uh, might lead to great change. So when you, the Ford government again is looking at industry sponsored research and tri-council funding, that's um, research to be valued above research that doesn't cost a lot of money. Much, much research is uh, very meaningful, very significant, and yet costs very little money and is only in need of a well-resourced library and time. The person needs time to read, time to think, time to synthesize. And those are all things that are taken away in the rat race, uh, hamster wheel, audit culture version of the academy where competition is prized over collaboration, where busyness and uh, salami slicing of findings uh, are prized over meaningful work that's deliberate and slow and might involve the community and the relational aspects of involving the community in every aspect of a scholarly endeavor. So that's from the questions you ask to the job you perform as a scholar to what kind of findings you produce and where do they get published? Where do they get uh, disseminated? Do they stay within the community? Do we just change a practice that leads to a lowering of diabetes rates or a lowering, lowering of HIV rates? Uh, there are all kinds of ways to measure success and don't fall into the trap, I'd say to, to, to new scholars of that's the only measure of success and do what feels right. Uh, another saying I love saying is do what matters over what counts. Mm -hmm. in spite of what the academy is telling you. But all of that is said from the privilege of a tenured position. Yeah. I have a tenured job. I have a guaranteed income, mostly, I think. Uh, so it's easy for me to say. And, and another thing that I always think about is the proportion of risk that one takes has to be proportionate to the amount of privilege one enjoys. So this is my fight. This isn't your fight as a new graduate student. This is, this is mine. You're in a precarious spot where you're just uh, struggling to get employed. Perhaps you have student debt. Uh, there are all kinds of other uh, big stressors on your life at this time. Uh, this is the fight of tenured faculty who better step up, better step up and better speak out. Mm. Uh, and, and that's my challenge to you, my fellow academics, is to speak out. You know this is wrong. Well, Mark, I think it's a, a great place to end. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it, and I, I hope uh, some listeners do as well. And that was Dr. Mark Spooner, Professor of Education at the University of Regina. You can follow his work on Twitter, at Dr. Mark Spooner. That's D-R, and then Mark with a C, Spooner. You can find that in the show notes. And that's it for this week's bonus episode of Darts and Letters. It was produced by Jay Coburn. Our composer is Mike Barber, and our graphic designer is Dakota Coop. And I'm your host, Gordon Caddick. If you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, it is still a new show, so we need your help to cook the algorithm. Subscribe, review, tell a friend. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. 
If you like what we do, I want you to support us. So go to Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. You will find bonus and early content on Patreon. As always, we want to hear from you. You can email the show at dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or you can tweet me directly at Gordon Caddick. We receive funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Our lead academic advisor is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia. We're also supported by a wider project looking at the rise of neoliberal educational policy. That project is run by Professor Mark Spooner at the University of Regina. Darts and Letters is made in two places, Toronto, Ontario, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Toronto is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. Vancouver is on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This is a production of Cited Media. We make other fine shows like Cited Podcast or Crackdown. You can find both those and others wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.